I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 13, please. John chapter 13. We do appreciate your prayers for uh, Pastor Billy and Steve as they travel. And uh, you can imagine, for me, I wish I was with them, uh, since going to Nepal has always been a highlight of mine. And, uh, but I'm so glad that we're, they're, they're going and they're serving and God's going to use them, so happy about that. Um, as you turn into John 13, the title of this morning's message, Cleansing Power for Christ-like Service. And uh, chapter 12 ended with this appeal to believe in Jesus. It's been, the intensity's just been ramping up as we've, we're coming to the close of Jesus's life, and there's been this call to believe rightly, not like the authorities at the end of chapter 12 who did believe, but they kept it a secret. You remember that part? They were worried about what other people would think, and it tells us that they love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. And the last six verses are this appeal, believe in Jesus and the one who sent him. Then John immediately here in chapter 13 just transports us to the upper room where they have the last supper. And this introduces this next section of the upper room discourse, the last several hours of Jesus's life, what he said and did. And so it's a kind of a transition point here in the book. And really, we're only hours away at this point from Jesus hanging on a cross, making atonement for sin. So we're just right before that. And that really sets the context for what's about to follow. So let's look at this together. We're going to read 30 verses. Um, so I'm going to invite you to follow along here. John 13, 1 through 30. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, well, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and head. And Jesus said, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to, him, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. God, I pray that this word that we've just read um, would have a transforming effect on our own hearts, Lord. That you would open our eyes to wonders anew that we can behold in your word that may be a familiar story, but we may not be familiar enough with its application. And we want this word to have its transforming effect on our own hearts. As you even said, blessed are we if we do them. If we not, not just read about it and know it, Lord, we want to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. So we lay our hearts bare before you and invite you to do that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, some time back, I read and benefited from the common grace found in two non-Christian books by author Jim Collins. So I'm a, if you don't know, I'm a small business owner, so I kind of geek out on some of these kind of books. And uh, those were good to great and built to last. Well, then Collins wrote a third book called How the Mighty Fall. Uh, and if, if you've ever read it, you'll know this is, in this book, he has this team of researchers who spends years doing historical analysis on the downfall of some of the largest and most successful companies in the world. And they identified a single common factor in every single story. Now, what do you think that would be? I mean, you might think it would be things like being uh, overly aggressive in your risk-taking or being unable to keep up with the changes and the changing needs of their clients, and especially in light of his previous books where he analyzed things like whatever happened to Eckerd Drug Story? I remember Eckerd. And why did Walgreens thrive and Eckerd collapse? And, uh, you know, different tech companies as well. He's looking at all of this. So you think, well, maybe it's because they weren't able to pivot with a changing society, keep up with uh, technological changes, or maybe it was financial greed that led to their downfall. You know, what was it? But the central point of this, again, non-Christian book is that the number one factor that led to major corporate demise in all the companies studied in their research was what he called hubris. That is, pride and an over sense of self-confidence was the number one factor to how the mighty fall. Now, I find it interesting that a secular book was able to identify pride as the root cause of major downfall and total failure. I mean, pride affects every one of us, doesn't it? Pride makes us think that we're always right and we see everything clearly. 
Pride leads us to crave approval from others and the worship of others. Pride lies to us and makes us think that we are self-sufficient and don't need anyone. Um, I, I'm just telling you things that I struggle with. So <laughs> these are, this, is, this is just very real. Pride leads us to judge others and make us think that we know what's in their hearts. Pride gets us to think that we can be God. That was the, the lie Satan sold him in the very beginning. You can be just like God, knowing all things. Pride leads us to think we can know all things and we can know them accurately and well. And when that is confronted, we argue and fight back because after all, we know what's going on. Really, to sum it up, pride keeps us from Jesus. But in this example, in this story, in this passage, we see the opposite of pride. We see one who rightly deserves everyone's worship, who truly does no wrong, who actually, in fact, sees all and knows all. And he is the one who is in this story on his knees serving lowly sinners. I mean, if if hubris is how the mighty fall, Jesus is showing us here that humility is the path to true greatness. And listen, let's not be mistaken as believers. We're not talking about a leadership tactic here. It's not an influencer's tool to be humble. It's not a strategy for building a great family or a great career or a successful company. Unbelievers can say we should cultivate humility. The the non-Christian book was making that point. But as Christians, we have an entirely different perspective. Humility is the God-ordained necessary path for every Christ follower. Because when we let pride reign in our hearts and we neglect growth and humility, the sobering reality is that a fall is just around the corner. Isn't that what the Bible warns against? That pride comes before a fall. But we see in Jesus' example here that humility comes before triumph. Hours before the cross, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Man, what do we do with that? Is this just a call to go out and be humble and serve others? It's at least that. That's primarily what I thought coming into the text. But, oh, there's so much more here. There's so much more here than just a model for us to follow. So much more is being conveyed through this event than just getting the dirt out from between our toes. (laughs) The problem is not Middle Eastern dirt or West Texas dirt or stinky wet socks on our feet today. The problem that Jesus is getting at is the dirt and filth of sin and pride that marks every one of us. He's going to make the point we all need the cleansing that this foot washing event pointed to. And when we learn how to receive from Jesus what only he can offer, oh how it can free us from pride and empower us to sacrifice for the good of others. So the main point, I would say, is the cleansing we receive from Jesus empowers us to serve others like Jesus does. And I think this text is going to help us see all of that. It's going to help us see, first of all, man, we just need to be cleansed by Jesus. I mean, can you think of an area of pride in your life right now? Have you ever felt just a reluctance to serve others? Have you ever been drawn more to comfort than to sacrifice? Well, Jesus comes to cleanse us from those things. 
But that cleansing has an empowering effect. So when we say cleansing power, we're not talking about like when Tide says the cleansing power of Tide, meaning, man, this thing's so powerful, it'll clean your shirts and get all this. It, it, it may clean your shirt, but it doesn't empower your shirt to swing the baseball bat harder. Uh, there's not an empower. When we talk about the cleansing power of Jesus, he both cleanses and he empowers. And that's an important point. So his cleansing has an empowering effect, and it's a sending effect, as we'll see when he references the messenger and the ones that are sent. That cleansing is so needed, isn't it? It's needed because it clears away the smoke and dust that can make it so hard to see where God is calling us to serve and who he's calling us to serve. So the cleansing we need brings the power we need to serve others. So there are three ways, at least I can see, that Jesus shows us that. The first, Christ humbles himself as our servant savior. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> it may be obvious where this is headed, that Jesus is calling us to serve one another with all humility, and that is certainly true. And maybe you're thinking, this is going to be a sermon about how we need to get out there and serve people. But we can't miss this vital starting point. Before Jesus calls his disciples to follow his example, John spends 11 verses showing us that Christ's own humility and what that looks like and how Christ alone can and must provide the cleansing we need before anything else can happen. Before we get to, now you need to go do this. Before we get to that, Christ is moving towards dirty sinners and cleansing them. That's the picture that we cannot miss. He is the servant savior before he's the servant example. We can't miss that point. Now, Jesus had already demonstrated this divine initiative in arranging this meal. If you remember the story as Mark and Luke tell it, um, they, he tells them, go into town. You're going to see a guy carrying a water jug. And you'll go into the master's house, talk to the owner, get reservations. Be sure and book the room that's upstairs that has all the space. And the guy's going to be like, sure, you got it. Jesus put it under my name. Will do. You know, Jesus arranged the whole thing for this event. So he's already showing divine initiative in just getting them to this point. So they did that and here they are. John skips all those details and rather he wants to spend his time on this extended parenthesis before the main event, so to speak. The actual story is Jesus rose from the supper, laid aside his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash and dry feet. But John doesn't just tell it like that, does he? Do you notice, look how many times he interrupts himself. Are you the kind of person who starts a story and then you have another thought and you say it and then you get back to the story and then you come to this other thought? That's kind of what John is doing. He's interrupting himself a whole bunch of times because he's trying to make some other points as he goes. So, um, what does he say? He, he knew this hour had come, look at verse one. He knew his hour had come to depart to the Father. Having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. See all these editorial comments John's given us. He mentions, by the way, Judas was there, ready to betray him at any moment. That Judas, did you, miss, did you get that? Judas is among the ones that are having their feet washed by Jesus. We're going to come back to that. Jesus knew, it says, that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he came from God and that he was going back to God. <clears throat> James Montgomery Boyce summarized it this way. He said, Christ was fully aware of his own authority, 
his divine origin and his future glory. And in light of that awareness, he washed his disciples' feet. In other words, Jesus didn't forget who he was. It, it, it just wasn't a moment of self-pity for Jesus. He wasn't giving them a, a, a just, oh, well, nobody else was here to do it. Let me go ahead and do it. He was giving them a picture. He was conveying a spiritual point. This is the kind of cleansing that you actually need. And it wasn't just about water and dirt. Foot washing in ancient culture was a task reserved for the lowest of the lowest slaves. It's even recorded that Jewish slaves were not really supposed to be doing it because it was even below them. It would, really should be a Gentile slave and ideally a Gentile slave woman. And you remember the historical background there where Pharisees would pray, I thank you God that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So those are the three categories that make you the absolute lowest in society. That's who would wash feet. So Jesus here, remember the divine initiative. He arranged this whole event. He put it all together. He's here. But notice what's happening. They're already eating. And in ancient culture, you would have your feet washed. All the guests would have their feet washed when they walk in. That's how the host honored their guests. But here, the meal's already begun. They're already seated. Apparently, nobody's washed feet. Apparently, there wasn't somebody there to wash feet. But listen, that was not some administrative slip-up on Jesus. Oh, I knew we forgot something. The foot washer. Man, can you make a note of that for next time we do? That's not what happened here. Jesus divinely arranged it so that there would not be a foot washer because he had a plan that he was going to be that. The meal had already begun and Jesus gets up to do a task that was unthinkable for someone like Jesus. Remember later in the text he says, you call me teacher and Lord and that's correct. It was unthinkable for someone that you would call teacher and Lord to be stooping down to wash people's feet. So you see what's happening. Jesus adopts this position of a non-Jewish slave. You can't get any lower than that. Well, you can get lower than that. You can get lower than that if following doing that, you also die outside the community as a criminal on a cursed cross, which was a symbol that you were not just condemned as an outsider, but you were condemned as an outsider by the very community in which you were meant to belong. Okay, that get, that's getting worse, no doubt. And it's not just that you were condemned and cursed by the community in which you were meant to belong. Jesus would hang on this cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't just a community. So it does get worse than stooping as low as to wash someone's feet. But this is the whole point of this event. This foot washing event is pointing to this greater humiliation of Christ that he would willingly undertake and willingly lay his life down so that others would be served, so that we can have our sins cleansed. It, it can't help but think of Philippians 2, 6 through 8, where Jesus is, is described as though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So much of that same language. He rose from the table. He took his outer garment. He wrapped himself. He stooped down. He washed. He cleaned. So much of this is pictures of what Jesus would come to do on the cross. How can this be? How can the God of the universe go this low? See, the shock is not the grossness of foot washing. And just so you're rest assured, we're not going to have a foot washing service after this is over. That would be weird and gross. That's not the point of the story. Is that, okay, we've got baptism. We've got the Lord's Supper. We also have foot washing. That, this was not a, a, a rite that Jesus was trying to institute and perpetuate throughout the church of the life, a life of the church, like baptism and communion was. No, this was an example of Jesus saying, this is, this is what should characterize the new community. Now, that's getting ahead to point two, but it's firstly, what should characterize a new community? The cleansing that only Jesus can bring. That we don't cleanse ourselves. We come to Jesus and he cleanses us. But the real shocker is not just that he's stooping down cleansing them. It's, the real shocker is because of who is doing it. That's the real issue. Nobody would have looked at the Gentile slave washing the feet and go, wow, so humble. They wouldn't, it would, they wouldn't have even thought that. They're doing their job. That's what they're supposed to be doing. But they are shocked. Peter pushes back because, no, you don't do that. That's below you. That's not something you should be doing, Jesus. Now, I can remember um, working as a nurse so you're probably really confused. But I, I, I was a nurse for 18 years, and now I'm not. Now I own a small business, so that's... The, but at, working as a nurse, we had a, uh, one of the best bosses I worked for. Her name was Tracy. And uh, when she was newer, so she would be the chief nursing officer. So this is the highest person in the hospital in the nursing department. You can't get any higher than this. So, you know, she's coming to work in, in uh, like a you know, pants or dress and high heels and makeup and works up in the front far away from, you know, where the real nurses work. And, um, and she's up in the office and behind a computer most of the time, whatever. Like, that's our impression of the nurse, the chief nursing officer. Um, but it was early on, and she would actually do this many times, where if there was a need, um, like, say, we had a patient who is an elderly patient and maybe had some, um, maybe had recent surgery, maybe had a recent stroke, could not take care of themselves, so they're in an inpatient facility being cared for, and uh, there can be some incontinence, and so a patient soils themselves, and we're short-staffed, and Tracy would come down and th throw on some PPE and put on some gloves and a mask, and she would get in there and clean a patient. And you know, we had, it's like we had people that were paying $10 an hour to do that, that we should be grateful for, who are doing that day in and day out. Nobody's impressed by that. But when that CNO, when that chief nursing officer came and went down and did the lowly task of serving a patient, when that was not in her immediate job description, that was below her as the highest person in the position of leadership and authority, when she would humble herself and serve in that way, guess what everybody was talking about in the break room for the rest of that day? When that chief nursing officer came in and got her hands dirty like the rest of us. She didn't stay in her comfortable office. See, what was shocking about that was not that she did it. We were all doing that kind of stuff. What was shocking about it is who was doing it. And that's exactly what was happening here. 
That's why Peter responded the way he did. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, he, he pushes back. You shall, you shall never wash my feet is really how we should see that. You, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. He didn't think Jesus should have thought so low of himself. He thought Jesus must have lost sight of how important he is. You're the son of God. What are you doing? You, you're better than this. Is this really the best way for someone of your importance to be spending his time? But in a real sense, pride is also at work in Peter. I mean, after all, here he's pushing back on the grace of God because maybe he didn't think he deserved it. And he certainly didn't think Jesus should be giving it out this way. See, Jonah, uh, for a similar example. But Jesus insists, no, this is necessary if he wants to have a share with Jesus. So Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Well, what's the point? Well, it's not just about foot washing, is it? The humility and self-abasement that Jesus demonstrated by washing their feet was again foreshadowing what was about to take place on the cross where true cleansing from sin would take place. In other words, right now, it's just washing feet, but it's about to get a whole lot worse or better depending on how you look at it. He will die a criminal's barbaric death to serve those who would reject him in their sin. And guess what? That includes us, doesn't it? And he's going to serve them with what? He's going to serve them with salvation. The cleansing we see in the foot washing event pointed ahead to the cleansing from sin that Jesus would bring through his ultimate humiliation when he lays down his life on our behalf at the cross. This is the cleansing that every one of us needs. I've been thinking about this song. Have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood? Have you? Have you been to Jesus for this? Have you received this total cleansing from him? It's what we need. We can't cleanse ourselves on our own. We need the cleansing power that only Jesus can bring. And you can have that. You can, he, he, he is coming to you today in this word saying, let me cleanse you. You can renounce trust in your own self, hope in your own good works, and cast yourself upon his mercy, and he will have you, and he will cleanse you, and he will welcome you into his family. Turn from self-reliance and sin, and trust in Jesus and be saved. Peter hears this, and that unless I cleanse you this way, you have no part with me. He hears it, and like Peter, he he. Ex- just gets excited and he says, well, then Jesus, do it all. Just wash everything. And he's all happy about it. And uh, there he is in, in verse 9 saying that. And Jesus replies by extending the metaphor a bit. So Jesus extends it. Look at verse 10. Well, uh, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now, he seems to be making a distinction between this initial cleansing that we receive at salvation and the ongoing cleansing that we need in our daily lives. So, John, who wrote this, wrote 1 John 1, 9, that if you confess your sin to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, the category of we we have been cleansed, we are a part of God's family, but we need ongoing cleansing because we're still dirtied by the effects of sin in life in a fallen world. So I I think that's what's happened in in what Jesus is getting at here. But of course, we're told parenthetically that Judas, on the other hand, had neither. Not every one of you. We'll return to that in a minute. 
Now, when we think of the cleansing that he comes to bring, this cleansing that we need, both initially total cleansing of salvation and ongoingly cleansing in sanctification, what is he coming to cleanse us from? Well, he's coming to cleanse us from sin and guilt and shame. Do you have those things? Do you feel those things? Do you realize your need for this cleansing from Jesus? See, I find in my own heart, I don't realize it often enough. Now, really, some people, maybe just, maybe you're regularly aware of the holiness of God and the total sinfulness of your own sin, and you despair about that. You feel condemned. God is so holy, and I am so sinful, and, and you despair under the condemnation of that reality. And there's, the, the Bible addresses that all over the place. But we also don't want to, we also want to acknowledge that there's another way to struggle about that, and that is to not be aware, as much as we should be, of either of those things. So, a promise to be cleansed from guilt and shame sounds nice, but it could not feel relevant to you if we're not necessarily walking around with guilt and shame all the time. And I would just say, at least not that you're aware of, consciously. Because the reality is that we do all walk around with sin and guilt and shame. It's just that some of us suppress it in a thousand ways so we don't have to deal with it. Or we transfer it to other people, thinking that it will go away, but it really doesn't. Or we seek to atone for that sin and guilt and shame through our own efforts, through our own hurting of ourselves or however we might seek to atone for it. But none of those are ways to deal with sin and guilt and shame. Jesus comes to cleanse us from those things and to cleanse us through and through. It is a total cleansing power. And so we want to, we want to come to him for these things and realize that all these other alternatives are just expressions of pride in our own hearts. How has your pride kept you from receiving all that Jesus wants to give to you? What does he want to give to you? He wants to cleanse you from sin, from guilt, from shame. We might say yes, but in our pride, like Peter, we're not ready to receive what he has to offer. So our pride pushes back and, and says, I don't need you. Now, we, we, you know, nobody would probably say, oh, I don't need Jesus. We, like, we wouldn't say that in discipleship group, right? But we say it in other ways. We, we say, we, we, we can adapt the mindset that I don't really need to be in the word regularly. I don't really need the gift of every Sunday. I don't really need the body of Christ. I can get by with a privatized faith and so on. All of these things are expressions of pride that say, I don't really need what only Jesus can bring me. And I, or I don't need the methods and ways that he's ordained to bring it to me. And so we can acknowledge theoretically we need it, but then we push back on the ways he intends to deliver that to us. Um, like the, you ordered the package and it's coming by UPS and FedEx shows up and you slam the door because you're only going to receive it if it comes from this particular delivery method. No, if God's going to deliver something, you should receive it whatever delivery carrier he chooses to send. <laughs> um, and, and think of that in terms of the grace that he wants to pour into your life. So before we get to how we need to be serving others like Jesus did, we first need to be able to receive from him what he has for us in the ways that he's ordained to deliver it to us. So this act, this whole act in these verses just highlights 
for us the true greatness of Jesus, that the divine son of God lowered himself to lift us up. He humbles himself as our servant to come and save us. And it's a picture of both the cleansing he brings in salvation and the washing he continues to bring in sanctification. And we need this cleansing power. So in light of that, in light of what he's come to do for us, and against that backdrop, he calls us to follow his example. Now the next two points will be much shorter. All right. So Christ presents himself as our humble example, point two. Here, Jesus turns our attention from the cleansing from sin that we need from him to following the example he set for us. And we see that in verses 12 to 17. He, he mentions this thing, teacher and Lord. And when you call me teacher and Lord, hey, that's right, that's good, I am that. But look at verse 14, he makes his point. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus is making the argument from the greater to the lesser. If I, Lord and teacher, God of the universe as well, let's add that in there. If I am willing to stoop down and serve sinners, how much more you, fellow sinner, should be ready and able and willing and desirous to serve other sinners? And again, it's not the act per se of foot washing that he's calling us to, but to the demonstration of that same kind of servant-hearted humility. So it's a call to see ourselves rightly. Are you greater than your master, Jesus is asking? If he did it, do you think somehow we're exempt from doing it? So it's a call to see ourselves rightly and see Jesus rightly, and it's also a call to action. Blessed are you. Happy will you be if you do these things. You know, it's the same thing we see in James about not just being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word. Blessed will you be if you do these things. Don't just give lip service to it. Do something about it. He's not inviting us to analyze all of the ways that we can and should be serving and never actually get around to actually serving. So he's calling us into action. So but we can't forget, as we talk about that, we can't forget the point we made in point one. Jesus isn't just calling us to the grunt work of serve others. There's something that precedes our service to others and even empowers and motivates our service to others. So Jesus says in verse 15 that I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You know what makes serving others wearisome? Because let's be honest, it can be weary. It can be weary serving in SGC Kids or greeters, worship team, bringing meals to people in need, showing up to discipleship group to serve others and care for people. It can be weary, right? It can definitely be weary. But I think what makes serving others wearisome often is because we've lost sight of the second half of verse 15. That we're, we've lost sight that what he's calling us to do is something he's already done for us. Do you see that in the second half of verse 15? That you also should do, just as I have done to you. See, I find in my heart, that's the piece I miss. I'm aware of his call. I gotta do more. I gotta serve more. I gotta be here. I gotta do that. Be faithful. And I quickly lose sight of, as I have done to you. I lose sight of the fact that Jesus has served me. Jesus has moved toward me in humility. Jesus has laid his life down for me at the cross to meet my greatest need. 
I have been served grace. And when I forget that, serving can become so wearisome. We can focus on the doing and forget the gospel. That Jesus has served us. He's humbled himself in sacrificial service of our greatest need. But oh, when we remember that, it can make all the difference in how and why we serve. Now, I remember years ago, um, our secretary at our church told us a story of Pastor Billy. And he probably wouldn't want me to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. He wouldn't want you to, me to tell you because he's humble. But um, this was just after a, a large number of people had left our church over theological disagreements. And, um, and it wasn't always, it wasn't healthy relationally in those departures. There was a lot of pain and hurt. A lot of hurt just in Pastor Billy's own heart and all of our leadership's hearts. Um, and... Some, sometimes shortly after, when the wounds were still fresh, there was some event that was taking place here at the church, um, and it was, it, was, it was being run by the church that all of the people who left went to. So all of the people came back to plan this event, and their pastor was there. Painful, right? I mean, just put yourself in, in that position. And, uh, and, the, and the pastor began to bark out orders and make demands about what we need to do for them to get the room ready and to do all of this stuff. And uh, they left and everything. And um, the next day, the secretary comes in and Pastor Billy is in here rearranging chairs, doing exactly what the people who hurt him came back and demanded from him that it probably was, took everything in him to want to do that. And he's there serving those people. And as I talked to him about that sometime later, one thing he, I remember him mentioning is saying something like, what else can you do with the people who have hurt you but wash their feet? That's what, I don't know what else to do. That's what Jesus would have done. And that's what he's done for me. And that's what he continues to do every time I sin. What do we do with the, do you realize that the people that Jesus washed the feet of includes a Peter who would deny him and a Judas who would betray him and he still moves towards them to serve them humbly, to love them. Where does that come from? Well, where does it, where does even like Pastor Billy's ability to do something like, where does that come from? It, I think it comes at least from remembering that we serve a master who washes the feet of those who would deny him and betray him. And he knew that. It comes from remembering that what he calls us to is not a path that he hasn't tread before us. He calls us to do something, verse 15, just as I have done to you. And oh, we've got to remember that. Does that reality of what he's done for us, how he served us, inform how we think about serving others? Does it? Does it inform our responses to others in conflict? I have been served by Jesus and he knew all of the ways I would sin against him and deny him and betray him and chicken out on him and be unfaithful to him and deny him publicly when given opportunities to speak uh, about his grace to lost people. All of the ways that I would sin against him, yet he loves me. He has served me. I don't usually remember that, but I want to. Do you? Because when we lose sight of this, we can be tempted to serve only when it's e easy and convenient. It doesn't cost me anything. We can be tempted to reach out only if there's some kind of way that it's going to benefit me. 
I was in a realtor's meeting and somebody, uh, they were all talking and somebody made this statement. Everybody around seemed to agree where this realtor said, yeah, I don't have time to like just be friends with people. If you're not making me money, I don't really want to deal with you. Somebody said that out loud. I'm like, wow. And everybody agreed. Did y'all heard that? And everybody's like, yeah, that's true. I agree. <laughs> wow. That is, not, that is not what Jesus is calling us to. Um, we, don't, we don't reach out and care for people only if it benefits me, only if it feeds me. This is the world's model of friendship. You need to be around people who are going to feed you and build you up. Well, yeah, that would be great. But guess what? We live in a fallen world. And we follow a Jesus who doesn't serve people who feed him and take care of him. That's not why he's doing it. He's doing it to the ones who would deny him and betray him and continue to sin against him and falter and fail all the time. When we forget these things, we can be quicker to defend our own image and reputation than we are to confess our own weakness and embrace it and be honest with it about it with other people. We can get to be tempted to just do by habit only whatever benefits me. But the nature of this foot washing example is that there is so much in it for the foot washer. His sacrifice it, it, there's nothing in it for the foot washer. His sacrifice is truly sacrificial. Oh, there's lasting reward in heaven, no doubt. But we don't always get that in the here and now, do we? So when we serve others with Christ-like humility, here's what's happening. We are transferring the grace we've received to the person we are serving. Man, what an opportunity that is. That's just a profound thought, I think. That's why I put it in your notes. When we serve others with Christ-like humility, we have the opportunity to transfer that grace that we've received to the person we're serving. Three areas where we can seek to do that in. In, in our families, first and foremost. How can we think of our families, spouses, children, as it applies, siblings, parents, how can we think of our families as contexts that we are called to serve that we're called to transfer the grace of God to the people God has placed in my life, to serve them with God's grace. See, I'm tempted to see my home as a shelter from serving. I serve the church, I serve in my job. When I come home, it's time for everybody to serve me. Thank you very much. Take my shoes off for me and feed me. Um, but the family is God's primary learning community. It's his primary discipleship community. And so that has to include the call to serve those in our families. What about serving the church? Serving up the grace of God to those in our church. Not seeing church primarily as a place where my needs can be met and my, I can be served, but coming with a desire to serve. We had a pastor some 20 years ago who would, who would say, for most Christians, this is what church looks like. But what Jesus calls us to is this. We're called to come and serve. How can we serve God's grace and think of church involvement, think of discipleship group involvement, life in the spiritual community as an opportunity to give? Because guess what? When, when we take that mindset, God's going to pour into us. He will. He will. What about our vocations? Do we see work as a slavish pursuit of financial gain or the unfortunate interruption to the life you'd rather be living? <laughs> Maybe that's how you see your job. Instead of seeing it as an opportunity to serve up grace to other people. I think in my business, I want those that I work with, because I have an employee, I have two employees, 
Uh, I want the people in my business to embody this culture of service. That We are here to serve people. We are expressions of the grace of God to our clients, to the people in the community that we work with, to the agents that we work with. Um, Is our job an opportunity to demonstrate the grace of God that we can serve to others? We don't always do that well. But is it at least something we're striving for? Do we think of our job as, Lord, as I go to work today, let me serve the customers that you're bringing into my path. We can think of our vocation that way. This is where Sunday morning needs to meet Monday morning life. We don't want to just hear about it and think the the primary application here is church and family. No, the the primary application is where we spend, where most of us, especially guys, where you spend 75% of your life in your vocation. And those are opportunities to serve people that God has brought into your path. And be assured, fellow Christian, that the ongoing cleansing we receive from Jesus is going to empower us to do this. It's going to empower us to serve others in this way. Um, it's going to empower us to serve the way Jesus did. Now, the, the last point, I'm going to hit it very briefly. Um, there's been this running contrast with Judas. So we see, what God, we see what Jesus is doing in his disciples. We see the transformation in Peter, this idea of serving, being an example. We have the contrast, the opposing contrast of Judas. And John keeps mentioning it throughout. While he's given these wonderful assurances to Peter and the disciples, Judas was there, but he was there as the exception. So all of this is pointing to Christ's plan to establish and preserve and purify a new community. So at the end of verse 30, we see Jesus departing. Picture of Jesus forming this new community. This is going to be a new community that is based on the servant-hearted humility that Jesus displayed. But in all of these events, we see that Christ rules the future to preserve our faith. Now I'm saying he rules the future because in verse 18... He says, I know whom I've chosen. In verse 19, he says, I'm telling you this now so that before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So there's Jesus' purpose statement. There's Jesus saying, I want your faith to be preserved, so I'm telling you this now. He knew that the events that were about to take place were going to make it feel like everything is lost. The future and all hope is lost. But he will be betrayed Yes, but scripture will be fulfilled that the very one who's sitting with him at the table, eating with him, will lift his heel against me. When Jesus said that, he's referenced in Psalm 41, where David was likely betrayed by a close friend. David, who was a type of Christ, was betrayed. And in the same way, Jesus would be betrayed by one of his disciples. He reiterates that in verse 21 as well. Now, at the time, the disciples don't know who he's talking about, and so they're murmuring, hey, ask him, ask him who he means. And as soon as it becomes clear, he's talking about Judas, and yet another expression of his divine authority, he looks to Judas and says, what you're about to do, go ahead and do it. Now, that closes the section. Back in verse 1, John tells us he loved his own. In verse 10, he looks at his disciples and says, you're all clean, but not every one of you. He knew who his own were, and he knew he was going to betray him. See, the shocking thing in the, in the whole story, as we've mentioned, is that he actually washed Judas's feet. We know he knows what was going to happen because he tells us that, but he actually washed Judas's feet. Now, put yourself in Judas's position. The Jesus you're about to betray, who knows all things, who knows your heart, who knows the future, nonetheless stoops down to wash your feet? 
Well, if there's anyone who should have stood up and said, stop, Jesus, it was Judas, not Peter. But in the hardness of his heart, Judas enjoyed being around Jesus without ever vitally entering into union with Jesus. And that is a dangerous place to be. He was never cleansed with the cleansing that Jesus said was necessary. As D.A. Carson writes, washed Judas may have been, cleansed he was not. Thank you, Yoda. Good point, though. Washed he may have been, cleansed he was not. Real cleansing is affected both through Jesus' revelatory word and through the atoning sacrifice to which the foot washing pointed. So in a sense, Jesus was washing Judas' feet as a warning and as a call to repentance. That unless Jesus truly cleanses you, you remain unclean. And the same thing is true today. Christ rules the future. He's telling them what's going to happen for a reason. And his reason is clear in verse 19. So that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Well, everything happens exactly as Jesus, is predict- as Jesus predicted. Judas leaves in verse 30. Yes, Peter would deny him. Thomas would doubt. The disciples on the road to Emmaus would struggle with confusion. But his own ultimately do not fail because he is preserving their faith. And so that's the contrast between the two groups, the disciples and Peter and Judas, is that for those that are his own, it's just reaffirming Jesus preserves them to the very end. That's where the chapter started, isn't it? He loved them to the end. So you see how by telling them these things, Jesus is working to preserve the faith of his disciples and to purify a new community for himself, a community marked by servant-hearted devotion that Jesus modeled for them, a community marked by the grace that they have received and an eagerness to transfer that grace to other people through their words and actions. So where do you need the cleansing that Jesus brings? Eric, you can come up and close this with a song. Well, I'll ask these last few questions. Where do you struggle to serve others? Where do you struggle to maybe walk in humility? To, especially maybe when our pride has been challenged. See, we all need the cleansing power that Jesus brings to love and serve others like Jesus does. We can't do it on our own. We can't lose sight of the ways he has washed our feet. The world may be effective at analyzing the effects of pride and the downfall of mighty businesses and empires. Jim Collins' book, How the Mighty Fall, does a good job there. But only Christianity offers a strong and lasting basis for an alternative. Only in light of who Christ is, how he stooped down to serve and cleanse rebellious sinners. Some who would deny him, some who would outright betray him. Only in light of the grace that we have received from Jesus when we deserved his wrath can we find any basis for slaying our pride and finding strength and power to serve others sacrificially. It's the only basis for it. We cannot lose sight of the cross and everything that that entails. The humility foreshadowed in the foot washing, epitomized in the crucifixion event. Securing for us the cleansing that we need from Jesus because it's by that cleansing that we will find the power we need to serve others like Jesus did. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we just invite this power, we invite this cleansing, we lay our hearts before you and I invite you to show us, Lord. Show us where you want to change us and stir gratefulness in our hearts for the ways you've done so already. In Jesus' name, amen.